Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guest will be Jim Mergens, who is the Executive Director of Moderation Management, and Walter Cavalieri, who is the Executive Director of the Canadian Harm Reduction Network. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon, and if you want more information, you can go to hamsnetwork.org book. Our first guest tonight is uh, Jim Mergens. Uh, who is the executive director of Moderation Management. Uh, Jim is actually an old friend of mine. And uh, I'm going to bring him right on board right now. Jim, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Ken. And it's good to talk to you. It's been years. Um, I remember, I think we met, my gosh, about six years ago. And uh, and uh, it's been a long association, and it's uh, really, really uh, great to be reconnected with you and uh, great to talk to you again. Okay, tell us a little bit about what is moderation management. Okay, well, moderation management was conceived in the in the early '90s or mid '90s by a person who was looking for alternatives to alcohol consumption that did not require strict abstinence. Her her name was Audrey Kishline, and she wrote a book relating to responsible drinking. And the, the thesis of the book was based on changing behaviors rather than looking at drinking from the disease model. Uh, MM is, is pretty much a, a, a I call it a, a lay, lay-oriented group of people who are assisting each other with their relative challenges in their alcohol consumption of going at as you said, um, as Hannah's mission is, is anything from abstaining from alcohol to cutting down in alcohol and finding moderation and balance in their lives. It's a a self-help movement. We are pretty much funded by our membership, and we offer a number of online and face-to-face meeting services to people who are interested in participating Okay, you mentioned a book by Audrey Kishline. Was this something that she just made up out of her head, or was there a lot of clinical research behind it? There was clinical research behind it, Kim. It was based originally on a Canadian study, uh, an organization called the Addiction Research Foundation, and they did a clinical study on, on excessive drinking from two standpoints, as I understand it. One was to establish standards for healthful drinking and also to establish standards and study the effects of harmful drinking. And so this was, was the basis for the, the numerous steps that we have in, in joining MM and, and also in uh, monitoring our blood alcohol levels and sizes of drinks. And, and so it's been given considerable academic study. And of course from that there's been numer- there's have been numerous other research papers written which can be accessed on our site. And uh, these clinical studies, did they find that people were successful at moderating their drinking, some people? Well, yes. Uh, the, the, the current book that we, we use for reference is actually called Responsible Drinking and it was written by three of our board members, Frederick Rogers, Mark Kern, and Rudy Holzel. And in, in the beginning of the book, it, it, there are some, some uh, testimonials written by MM members who did find success with uh, moderating their drinking by following moderation, 
the moderation management's guidelines and uh, getting through the process and, and finding that they were successful. What are the guidelines? Okay, well, yes, um, the guidelines are essentially um, the, the to regulate your drinking, and uh, some of the guidelines are to not drink daily, for men to drink no more than four alcoholic beverages in any one sitting, and to abstain from alcohol for at least three to four days per week. And also for women, the the limits, these are limits and not goals, by the way, uh, mm-hmm. are no more than three drinks in any one occasion, and to also abstain from alcohol at least three to four days per week. And also, uh, another important consideration is um, drinking at a level, a slow slow enough level to to hopefully ensure that your blood alcohol level never gets past the point zero five five level. Okay, is the moderation management intended for all drinkers and everyone or it's it's actually well I have to rephrase that slightly. It's not a matter of intention, but it is available for anyone who's concerned about their drinking. The the goal of moderation management and what's outlined in the book Responsible Drinking is to quickly determine whether or not moderate drinking is for you. Uh, for for some, there are two two theories that I've encountered on excessive drinking or problem drinking. One is the d- disease model that states that those who may refer to themselves as alcoholics have no control over their drinking, that it may be induced by a certain zone in the brain or, or certain chemical reactions and basically get, creates a dependency on alcohol that they, in their words, say they have no power against. Moderation management's approach is from the behavioral side of it. And so what we look at are what our habits are and what our customs are when we drink. So MM op- offers some tools to to slow down the drinking, to look at the drinking, to count the number of drinks you consume, and basically alter your behavior until your your habits are those of a what we call a natural or normal moderate drinker. Tell me some more about the tools. Okay, sure. Uh, key, key things are, well, there's basic essential things. Uh, essential things are first to, uh, we have, as a matter of fact, we have an, in our literature, we have some steps. Um, we call them steps because they seem to be the popular uh, reference. And uh, what, what they basically are is to um, start, get with the program. Basically, attend meetings or online groups and learn about the program and moderation management. You first have to know what we're all about. Uh, then and the next step is to abstain from alcoholic beverages for 30 days and then move on to examining how drinking has affected your life, write down priorities, do a, a cost-benefit analysis, uh, look at how often and under what circumstances you've been drinking, like recognizing triggers. Triggers can be seem to be mostly induced by stressful situations, and alcohol is used to alleviate stress or, or to be used as a social lubricant um, and, and basically basically self-medication. Uh, when the, the, main, the main thing, though, is these nine steps are not mandatory steps. At least in the spirit of the philosophy of, of MM, these are the recommended steps to work through the program, although there are many successful moderators who have never actually discontinued drinking for 30 days, yet have used the certain tools, which was your, your original question. The tool, mm-hmm. tools are to count your drinks. Uh, a lot of people who are problem drinkers really have no idea about of how much they drink. And sometimes that can be quite an eye-opener when, when people see how much they're actually consuming. So we have a, an online tool called AppStar at Moderation Management, where each and every day one makes a pl- states the, the amount they drank or whether they did not drink. And the best use that i found for it is to plan a month in advance of what days I will be drinking and what days I will not drink. And so 
And that was an eye-opener, personally, just speaking from my own experience. When I realized how much I was drinking, I thought, uh-oh, this is, this is really not safe. And MM, MM's uh, recommendations, and we, we really call them guidelines, are to take slow steps for yourself that you personally can live with and accomplish as you go. Uh, some some people can slip right into the moderation groove with relative ease. I, I think if you catch a, a problem drinker in the early early stages of problem drinking and get their awareness to the point where they realize they are over drinking or put, putting themselves in harm's way or others in harm's way, such as drunk driving, um, they at that point in life the habitual over drinking isn't so ingrained as it becomes later on in life for people, say, in their post-30s on points of life where it's much, much, well, not much, but it's harder to break habits. Okay, you talked about counting your drinks. Um, yeah. What is a drink? If I go to a bar and order a martini, is that going to be a one drink that I would write down? Uh, the problem, Tim, the problem with martinis is that you probably won't know how a big drink it is they are actually defined, and they a drink is considered, just to put it in basic day-to-day terms that we understand, at least in America, is that one drink is a five-ounce glass of wine, or it'll be a 12-ounce uh, bottle or, or can of beer, or it'll be one and a half ounces of 40-proof alcohol. Because it was, it was important to establish exactly what we're calling a drink because it can be so relative. If you see a wine glass, it can basically hold half a bottle of wine. We're not going to call that one drink. And, and so so that's uh, to take the fudge factor out of it. Yeah, I know if I go into a bar here in New York and order a martini, I probably get about four shots of gin in it. Well, yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And every bartender is different. And you never know whether they're doing a liberal pour or not. So, so you really, you really have to be mindful of of what you think you are consuming at the time. I, I think, I think mixed drinks are probably one of the most, uh, uh, how do I put, hazardous methods of keeping a good handle on how much you're drinking. So, so that that one, I, I, I feel, has to be played by instinct. I mean, you probably the logical thing to do would be to ask the bartender how much he's pouring in there. Hmm. Or if you really? know the bartender, well, you could tell him make me uh, just one <laughs> shot in it. You know. Exactly. Yeah. And so I, you know, and I, well, from what I've read on moderation management's listserv, which is where members post questions and stories and theories, uh, I, I've read so many posts about people who have gotten one margarita that was really loaded up with. Tequila and one pretty much did the trick for them, and others who who have said that uh, one such beverage has basically tasted like fruit juice with a little sour, you know, a little sour uh, salt around it, and and so it's really it's really difficult to to tell with mixed drinks. We, that, okay. That's where we have to use our own our own judgment. Of course, uh, the, the safest thing to do, and if we're talking harm reduction, of course is to ensure that if you're going to go to a bar where you don't know what they're pouring, make sure you've got some a ride home. Take mm-hmm. a taxi or make sure you have a designated driver so you don't put other people in danger. Mm-hmm. We yeah. talked about slowing down your drinking. What are some uh, tools and strategies to slow down drinking? Oh, yeah, there absolutely are. Uh, the, after counting your drinking, the, the next step is to measure and train yourself to start drinking later than you usually do. Uh, a member I, I spoke to years ago said that the first thing she used to do before she even took her coat off was to get the bottle and pour herself a glass of wine. And the first step she took was to first hang up her coat and then pour the glass of wine. Uh, also, a lot of people have a certain time of day when the bar basically is open, whether it's 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock or whatever time in the world it's 5 o'clock. Uh, what, what's important is to identify for oneself when one starts to drink. When I personally did my 30-day, and I did do a 30-day abstention from alcohol, I realized that I was trained a lot like a Pavlovian dog 
to basically at right around five o'clock was time to pour. And it really surprised me. For the first couple of weeks, something, some bell went off in my mind saying, hey, it's time for a glass of Cabernet. And, uh, and of course, I dealt with the feeling. I analyzed where it was coming from and realized that I was a, a trained a, a trained monkey or dog to pour my wine at five. So one of my steps, this is, of course, when I was cutting down my drinking, was to, instead of starting at five o'clock, I started at 5.30. Also, what's important is to have a closing time for the bar. Now, mm-hmm. a lot of people come in where in a position where they do not have a, a time to stop drinking. Uh, so it, it's important to say, to establish with oneself when one's, when a person's going to stop. MM guidelines essentially state that a moderate drinker does not participate in a drinking occasion for longer than, say, two hours, and and they do not pour a drink more frequently than one each half hour. So, so by extending by by extending the starting time to later, closing the bar earlier, and then stretching out the time between pours. It and if you follow it and you're diligent and persistent about doing it, the moderate habits appear. They come with time. As my predecessor used to say, it was a matter of patience, persistence, and practice. And it truly is. Do people find it's useful to, uh, say, switch their drink of choice from something like whiskey to beer or something? Well, that's interesting. I, I, I personally have not encountered in MM literature that practice, but having been an ex, I'm an ex-smoker, and I've been an ex-smoker for a long time, and that was actually one of the most successful strategies that we used. Uh, I used to smoke regular cigarettes, and I. I switched to menthol, which I abhor, but (laughs) that was the only cigarette I I allowed myself to smoke. And so it it became more more and more or less and less motivating to even want to smoke or even crave the smoke if I did that. So I actually consider consider that a valuable tool in in working on the, the consumption of the situation. That's a great question. Oh, you uh, don't know this, but I've been uh, off cigarettes for almost three years now. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I uh, it was uh, through a program. Well, I don't want to get too off topic, but it was a program called Smoke Enders, and uh, I saw a lot, a lot of long-term smokers able to give it up and keep it given up, and I'm actually one of them. And and that, that, that's where we we approach the behavioral aspect of alcohol consumption is that that for many people it's simply a matter of behavior and habit and altering it and a lot of a lot of things also another uh, some certain tricks that we use not tricks but uh, practices is to eat before consuming alcohol Mm -hmm. uh, alternate non-alcoholic beverages between alcoholic beverages continue eating while one is consuming alcohol beverages, and then continue to eat after one is drinking alcoholic beverages. That way the uh, alcohol is metabolized at fast, and the blood alcohol level is kept at, um, again, what we uh, we call the uh, sub-0.055 blood alcohol level. How available is moderation management to people? Moderation management is, is uh, basically one click away from anybody who can get to a computer. We, our site, which is moderation.org, just word moderation.org, will give you a wealth of tools, and we have several venues through which the the program is practiced. We have, well, where I started was, is I, I first of all I googled moderation because I had I didn't have a clue that MM even existed. And then I found it, and I clicked on it, and I found the site. It, there is a, an email, what we call a listserv, which is a posting board where conversations are had via email concerning, again, drinking reduction goals, problems, and challenges you're having with drinking. And that's available to anybody who wants to sign up. 
We also have, uh, in certain selected cities, we have face-to-face MM meetings, and on our site there is a drop-down menu that will show the various cities and countries where um, face-to-face MM meetings are held. We also have a listing of moderation-friendly therapists. Uh, A lot of therapists, and I sad to say, in my opinion, a lot of therapists think there is only one solution to problem drinking. And so we we uh, are one of our services is to refer problem drinkers to therapists who understand moderation and who can guide them through the moderation process and help them determine whether or not they're a candidate for moderate drinking. And that we also have uh, some links to some other other sites that deal with problem drinking as well, uh, and uh, most of them are are uh, abstinence-based, but um, MM endorses abstinence for any problem drinker who realizes that moderation just isn't working for them. There's really no point to trying to be a moderate drinker for years and years and years and failing to be a moderate drinker without getting real with themselves and finding the right solution. So you don't take the position that uh, everyone can moderate their drinking successfully? No, as a matter of fact, you know, one, one sector of moderation management are what we call MM absers, and these are the very people I was talking about. They're long-term moderation management members, yet they're a support group for those who have tried the, moderate, the moderation path, and it just didn't work. They, And, and I don't like to use the word fail, I, as I think we both agree, fail is the F word. Mm-hmm. You want to, the one F word that's really a, not a decent word to use, people who, who are just really tired of the struggle to be a moderate drinker. So they, they follow various channels of abstaining from alcohol. They support themselves. They talk about the issues that they have. And in the book, Responsible Drinking, there's actually a section that lists several organizations that can assist people who've decided that they want they want to and have to abstain from alcohol. Do you find that uh, people sometimes have other issues that are fueling their drinking that they need to deal with? Oh, that's a great question, Ken. I I, I would say that, that that's almost a given in this situation. Uh, excluding perhaps people who may have an addiction, addictive proclivity to alcohol, I would say that, at least I will speak for myself, I, I, I felt that I had reasons to drink. And I think a lot of people start out just simply enjoying a, their drink of preference. And then when situations in their life come up, which we call triggers, and these are usually emotional upsets, um, problems, challenges, things that, that emotionally they just doesn't seem bearable, um, that it's used as a rationalization to to take a drink, and so so part of the process in moderation management is to identify our own personal triggers, and working through them. Working through them is is uh, done a couple ways. One is one is to identify what the situation is and see if it's a soluble situation. Can you solve the problem? Another thing, if if it is somewhat physiological. Uh, a craving, say. Uh, there's a, an expression we love to use, and it's called urge surfing. And that's, it's, it's a process that almost sounds Eastern, but it's very practical, and it's really looking at yourself from a different perspective, stepping back, seeing yourself, seeing what your mind's going through, and seeing it objectively rather than being pulled into the middle of it. And then through that process, when the triggers do come, the next step is to say, okay, I'm going, I'm getting a trigger here. I know what my compulsion to do is, so let's find an alternative. And so the alternatives, again, are to use, uh, actually it's an aspect of, of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is to replace toxic thoughts with healthy ones. And physically it means cultivating other interests, hobbies, other ways to relax, uh, perhaps changing the people we associate with. A lot of, I mean, personally, I had I had some buddies who 
just like to get together and pound them. And I found as as I backed away from that group, um, my tendency to pound them declined. And more people that, that I know and associate with who do not drink excessively um, assist me. And I, frankly, if they don't care for one, I really don't seem to care for one. But you, did you find it necessary to uh, cut off all your old friends or not? No, no, not all of them. Because it's it's not really possible. It, it, for some, yes. Some 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 people are just plain toxic, and the only thing they like to do is to drink to stupefaction. Uh, in other instances, I realized, and I think the cards, the clouds parted for me when I realized that the decision to moderate is really a very personal one. And, and the best example I can give, I, well, I have a couple, but the best example was that when I abstained for 30 days, my then significant other did not. And I noticed it. I would have appreciated if that person had not consumed alcohol during the time, but she decided that she was going to. So, I, and I think that's really important because if, if it's not a personal decision and it, it's, say, pushed by others or, or pressure from, say, a significant other, then, then it's very difficult to take ownership of what, of your own problem drinking. So that was a very important lesson I learned. And, and in fact, here in California, our, our grocery stores are essentially wine shrines. So you just can't you can't get around, you can't get through life without it always being there and always being in your face. So for the abstainer or the moderator, it, it really is a matter of one's own personal decisions and habits. Now, in your experience, uh, have you found a lot of people drink in response to things like depression or anxiety or other psychological issues like that? Well, yes, I, I've, I've seen it. I've read about it, and I've seen it. And, of course, the horrible irony of that is that, especially for depression and anxiety, alcohol uh, basically uh, increases both of those those problems. Uh, being essentially a depressant, uh, it's it's mostly seen, it may not be seen at the time, and a person may be down in the dumps or had a bad day at work, has a few drinks, and feel like you know life is good and the sun is shining until the next morning. And the next morning is where the hangover kicks in and, and the anxiety and depression is intensified. And uh, it would undoubtedly be attributable, at least for a in a certain portion to the consumption of, of the alcoholic beverages. But yes, it's used as a medication by people with, with psychological issues. Not so, by all of them, but by, by some, by quite a few, I estimate. Do you have a recommendation for these people? I mean, do you recommend that they go to see a therapist or something? Well, yeah, as a matter of fact, yeah. See, there's, there are a number of paths to take for these people, and that's why we, we take, take our recommended therapist list very seriously to find a moderation friendly therapist or really just simply find a therapist with whom they can work through some of the issues that trigger their alcohol use and and that and that's in certain cases and in, in lighter cases i don't know lighter or heavier but it, in not so serious cases participate in the let list serve Oh, get on chat. We have a, a chat room where people can talk about their issues, and then get anecdotes and support from uh, fellow MM members. Okay, Jim. I see our next guest is here. I'm going to give you like one minute to uh, summarize, and then we're going to bring on our second guest. Okay. Well, I, I guess personally, I um, cannot underestimate how grateful I am to moderation management for bringing balance to my life and helping me form positive life habits, and I find myself now and more and more living a more balanced life where alcohol is an enjoyable but small part of what my life is all about. Uh, I, well, I would recommend anybody examining, checking out the site, Moderation Org, reading through the materials, reading the, the FAQs, and seeing if, if the attempting moderation is for you. Okay, Jim, thank you very much. Thank you very much for being our guest tonight. You're welcome.
pleasure. Hello, Walter, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi there, Ken. Hi, welcome to the show. This is uh, Walter Cavalieri, who is the Executive Director of the Canadian Harm Reduction Network. Tell us a little bit about what you do with the Canadian Harm Reduction Network. Well, the network was formed about, uh, I think, uh, 10 years ago by a group of uh, uh, advocates from the uh, greater Toronto area to um, really to promote the awareness and acceptance of harm reduction across Canada. And since then, that's what we've been doing. Uh, We have over 1,000 members and a mailing list of about 40,000 people who get uh, uh, announcements from us periodically. We're in the middle of developing a new website right now. We had funding. <clears throat> pardon me. We had funding to do that from the uh, the Mac AIDS Fund, which I'm very grateful for. And um, we've been instrumental in forming the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition, which is now moving forward. Uh, and had a finger in the pie in a lot of places in Ottawa with our um, with national projects and Ontario, where I'm located, in a lot of uh, provincial and uh, Toronto projects as well. Um, uh, four or five years ago, together with the Canadian Aid Society, we did a research project uh, holding focus groups across Canada in nine small to medium-sized cities uh, with people who use drugs, essentially, but also did um, some interviews with agencies and walkabouts with outreach workers to um, uh, look at what the status of harm reduction is in small cities and uh, small to medium-sized cities across Canada, rather than looking solely at the big cities like Vancouver and Montreal and uh, Toronto. Pardon me. Sorry about the the frog in my throat here. It's okay. And uh, so that's about where we are. Uh, We're we're busy. We have only a volunteer staff uh, and uh, uh, only a small amount of funding, uh, but we keep plugging and keep making a difference. When did you personally first get involved with harm reduction? Well, I, I did a career change uh, in my uh, my 50s. Went back to universities uh, and studied and received two degrees in social work and uh, started to work on the street with young people, uh, mostly boys, but some young girls are engaged in um, street sex, prostitution. And uh, I came into the whole field of, uh, of uh, well, youth work and even adult work with a, a fairly abstinence-based background, but um, because I, that's what I had, what was around me, that's what I had absorbed from what was around me. I'd never studied addiction per se, but I, I soon saw that it wasn't working with the young people at all, and uh, they were really looking at ways of continuing to use the drugs and control the use. And when I went to work with an adult population after three or four years with the young people, this was even clearer. And uh, I had the opportunity at that time to set up a, a needle exchange program uh, in in one of in the, the the district of Toronto, which had the highest um, incidence of uh, heroin use. It was the closest thing we've ever had to a drug scene in Toronto was in the in the community of Parkdale. And I set up this needle exchange program, and very quickly renamed it um, as a harm reduction program, hired a couple of peers. I think I was the first person in Toronto to hire people who are actively using drug drugs to do uh, needle exchange and outreach, and proceeded to basically learn from my clients and then learn from reading and learn from conferences until I developed a whole kind of philosophy of working and uh, a really active harm reduction program uh, in this particular community. When I left there, I went into harm reduction research, looking at researching drug users on the street, some program development, uh, and I'm, I'm still doing research and program development. Uh, I also have a, had a parallel career uh, counseling uh, students at a university on personal issues, not on academic issues. So I saw quite a few young people who were uh, uh, using drugs, uh, using alcohol and other drugs to to excess, actually, and to, the de- to their detriment. So uh, I brought my harm reduction work into the university scene as well. And I worked there for 10 years, uh, and now, now it's just research and uh, some staff training and um, community development work. That's about it. 
Well, I've also done volunteer work in needle exchange, and I found it to be a great learning opportunity. And I recommend anybody out there that's listening, if you want to learn how to do harm reduction, go volunteer in needle exchange. They always need people, and it is such a great learning experience. It's the best way. You have to keep your ears open and really learn from the users. Um, in fact, the idea of needle exchange has been um, replaced, at least in Ontario um, and in most of Canada right now, by needle distribution. Because the idea of exchange doesn't work uh, sufficiently. So you want to give people, and one of the things I learned very quickly was, you need to give people everything or as much as possible that, 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 that they needed in order to keep themselves safe. Uh, and so that's the issue of with uh, with needle distribution, and in fact, we're we're also uh, giving out in in many parts of Canada a lot of equipment for uh, safe smoking, safer smoking of crack, because that's an even uh, it seems to be a more extensive problem now in a lot of communities than injecting um, uh, drugs like uh, the opiates. So we well, give I out crack, yeah. Yeah, I saw that. They've been in the news a lot lately, the crack pipe distribution, and it's, it seems controversial, or some people are objecting to it quite a bit. Could you address that? Well, I've been doing that a lot in the press lately and on some live television and radio. And uh, To me, it, it, there's nothing controversial about giving out equipment so people can, can use drugs uh, in a less harmful manner. Uh, can, can mitigate the harm that might come from, say, smoking crack. And to do that, the best we can do now is to give them uh, pipes they don't share, uh, screens or choy for filtering the uh, for, for 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 the uh, crack, um, rubber mouthpieces to prevent burning, um, and and help them to do it do their crack use smoke their crack in as harmless a way as possible. Now. There are two reasons for doing that, and I, I, there, there's some struggle about which is the more important one. The researchers are looking at um, crack pipes as um, uh, vectors for um, um, transmission of communicable diseases like uh, hepatitis and, uh, and uh, HIV, and to a degree that is the case, but the, the Research is still very slim on the on the extent of the distribution of those diseases, of the transmission of those diseases. The more important thing to me is the fact that by giving the person a gift of a crack of crack equipment, you build you start to build a relationship with that person, which will enable the flow of ideas, the flow of information, the flow of caring, and. Uh, will unpack some of the things in that person's life which have been stopping her or him from seeking out uh, some support or treatment around their smoking and looking at the underlying issues, for example, the issues that have come from poverty, uh, uh, from abuse, from early trauma history, from whatever, and help them to get care and treatment and medical care. That's the most important thing to me. The relationship that you form when you provide uh, a necessary service to someone, a necessary service to this person would be crack smoking equipment. Um, unfortunately, amongst the people who smoke, who use drugs, uh, crack pe people who smoke crack seem to me the most vilified, uh, the most uh, stigmatized. And some of that happens right within the drug community, although to a lesser degree than it did in, say, 10 years ago. Uh, but a lot of it occurs in the general public because of the um, the early crack panic, which has never really been um, addressed clearly, which has never which has never stopped. Uh, when crack first uh, hit the streets in any quantity, uh, you may recall that there was the the big issue of. Newsweek magazine, for example, with the crack babies sensation. Mm -hmm. Crack mm -hmm. babies didn't exist. They and they, they the issue was babies who were poor in poverty. They were not had nothing to do with the mother smoking crack or cocaine. And the issue of the rotting teeth, which was then brought up in in relation to uh, uh, amphetamines. But 
crack was just the, the pits. It was the worst drug possible. Also, it was considered the drug of black people, and that's, there was a whole racial piece here. So people who smoke crack are, are stigmatized because they smoke crack are also racialized. So they're no good, and we don't want to do anything for them. And there was recently a piece in one of the newspapers that we just locked them up in a in a camp. If they don't reform, just let them stay there until they die. You know, there's mm-hmm. that kind of thing. That came from a lawyer, by the way. Uh, so, and I think that public health and health ministries, at least in Canada, have not done enough to address the, the stigma of smoking crack. It's been left to um, people who uh, have other major issues on their hand, like raising money to get their crack equipment to give out, like having enough personnel, like training people, like supervising staff, like putting up with the, with the, uh, the community abuse that they receive because they're doing this work. So I think public health and the health ministries and governments in general need to, if they really are sincere about uh, the public health issue of crack, and they have to address the issue of stigma, and they aren't doing it. Oh, absolutely not. They're not addressing it at all. And, uh, you know, in the United States, I think the situation is, is worse than it is in Canada. Canada's harm reduction is more accepted in Canada than the U.S., I think. I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm going to beg to differ with you a bit. Uh, mm-hmm. When we had our we had a, a, an election, uh, federal election, um, six years ago, I believe, and uh, elected a minority conservative government, and within the first month of their, their, their mandate, they uh, revised Canada's drug strategy and removed harm reduction from it, and removed drug, uh, anything related to drug from health and moved it all into the criminal justice system. That government has just... Uh, achieve majority status so it can go ahead and do whatever it wants uh, now without um, a sufficient uh, opposition to control its most bizarre and wild ideas. As a matter of fact, right after they came into office six years ago, they consulted with George Bush's team of of drug uh, strategists about what they should do, and this is what came out of it. Then do you think a lot of... Even though we... We have have a history of, and even though we've had a history of harm reduction in the books, very often it was the last thing funded. Uh, the Canadian drug strategy, for oh, about 15 years, has had harm reduction in as one of its uh, its pieces, but it never received funding. So it's just a name only. So in a way, it set harm reduction up to be to be uh, destroyed. It wasn't. It, it said here is a good idea maybe, but uh, we're not going to fund it. So we don't believe in it really. So I think it was a two-faced approach. So yeah, you have it better. You have it worse in some ways, but on the other hand, you've got a more activist population than we do. Uh, and um, so even though all of this is happening about harm reduction being uh, vilified, uh, the outrage has not generated um, a mass action against the government. As a matter of fact, what's happening is that people are removing the terms harm reduction from their funding applications and not talking about harm reduction for fear of losing funding. So there you go. If they stop talking about it, they'll stop doing it. I'm sort of cynical about that, I'm afraid. Well, one of the things that I hope to do with the harm reduction for alcohol program is to bring the idea of harm reduction more into the mainstream public and let them see, yes, this is a good idea for alcohol, so it's a good idea for drug users too. So I'd like to bring ideas more into the public. I agree with you. Um, One of the the texts that uh, was very influential to me uh, many years ago was um, a book on solution focused therapy by Insu Kim Berg, and I can't remember the name of the book right now, but she was one of the gurus of solution-focused therapy. And she told a long story about her father. Uh, this was a book on treating addictions with, through this particular therapeutic process. She told a story about her father who became a very, very heavy drinker, and it was ruining his life. Uh, and he might have been labeled an alcoholic and said, you know, uh, this man can never touch alcohol again. He's got to submit to the 12-step uh, uh, 
doctrines and uh, and uh, just uh, you know never enjoy a drink again uh, because he's he's physically ill. You know, this is a, a medical illness. And she talked about how some changes in his personal life happened, his career. Mm-hmm. And he, he cut his, his drinking just cut back automatically, and he went back to his old self after several years of drinking, uh, drinking having been out of hand. He's drinking uh, drinks with dinner, and he's doing really well. And that's to say, well, if they can do that with alcohol, why can't they do it with other drugs? And, of course, I'd seen it before with alcohol, but I never never put it together. And I began looking at the other drugs. Now, I read a book by a, a Belgian Ph.D. student called The Taming of Cocaine, uh, in which he talked about uh, his research, talked about um, people who had controlled cocaine. And at the end of the you know, for years I worked in theater. And people after shows would do would, would uh, party and do lines, and they come in the next day and be fine. They weren't uh, wandering like the people uh, I saw in the downtown east side of Vancouver, for example, in a, in a drug days, or, or like I saw in my own neighborhood in Toronto in the drug days. No, they were using their cocaine quite appropriately and were fine. They were doing a good job when they came into work and having a party at night. And I began to think, oh, there's a hell of a lot of mythology. We're pathologizing any drug use by looking only at the ones whose drug use is out of hand and not looking at the ones who uh, are having a um, a positive relationship with the drugs, with alcohol and other drugs. And recently I've been looking at that in terms of how you know, homosexuality was pathologized by the psychiatrists who looked only at the uh, uh, the people who came into their office. and said, ah, I'll... All, all homosexuals are dysfunctional, so therefore this is a disease. This is a psychiatric diagnosis, and there, there, there is something wrong with them. And it took uh, a long time to get that turned around, that homosexuality is one of the norms. So using drugs is one of the norms. Using drugs when it gets out of hand is not healthy, and, but that doesn't have to be, become the case for every user. And that I, I say that with alcohol. The other thing we, uh, we, we have to look at is, uh, at least in Canada, in all of the drug deliberations we did on the policy level federally, and even provincially, there were representatives of the brewers and the vintners at, at these meetings while we were developing policy. Why weren't the representatives of drug dealers? Why weren't the drug dealers in the room? <laughs> because the drugs are, are, um, are criminalized. And I think the people who are dealing drugs and the people who are using drugs have a right to have some say in what's going on. I realize that's a radical view, but, you know, it's, it's not an unreasonable view. These people know what's going on. First of all, we've got to stop. We've got to uh, find a new way to regulate and control the now illegal drugs uh, because you cannot do what you need to do unless, that's, unless prohibition ends. But secondly, you've got to bring the, the, the people into the room to, who are most affected by this, the people who are selling drugs, the people who are buying drugs and using drugs. And we've been really good in, in, uh, in Ontario and in a lot of Canada uh, in bringing people who actively are using drugs into, into uh, the, the think tanks, into deliberations, and paying them for their expertise. I don't know that that's happening in the United States, but it's been it's meant that we've been able to think more uh, reasonably about how to handle situations because, you know, no one got up in the mornings, uh, no one set out in, in life, I think, to become an addict or to become, a, to become dependent on drugs. That isn't the way they set out. They set out to use or, or they found themselves using drugs, and for some of them, it got out of hand. And when it's out of hand, it's difficult to control. So those are the people that we need to work with, but we don't need to we don't need to condemn them. We don't need to put them in jail. That's the worst thing you can do to them. We need to help them to, I think, use their alcohol and other drugs in a responsible way, if that is possible. There may be some for whom that's not possible, but we don't um, shame them either. So that's the way I think. Sorry, I get when I get wound up, I just. Don't shut up. No, that's fine. Talking is fine. I think also, uh, even in the case of addiction sometimes, 
Uh, we see cases historically of opiate addiction where, I mean, the people have functioned completely as doctors. One of the founders of John Hopkins University was revealed after his death to be a lifelong uh, morphine addict, but he functioned yes, there, as a there surgeon. Yes, there are quite a number of people like that. And there was an interesting book about uh, oh, 20 years ago by Don DeJale called Addicts Who Survive, which was about addicts who... Who, um, and who who manage their lives using drugs. I have a little problem with the word addict. I have to say that. Uh, it's become a dirty word uh, for a lot of people that I know and, and, and for me because it's, it's damning um, and it's not, and it's used too generally. There are some people for whom drug use becomes a compulsion, if, that, if that's an addiction. Uh, okay, but compulsive drug use has less of a label, a hostile or negative label, than the word addict. Mm. Uh, and um, I, I would say that here in Canada, there is a strong movement among activists and people who use drugs to eliminate that word. And uh, I think it's a good movement. It's the same movement. I go back to the issue of homosexuality. Uh, homosexuals were called deviants for years. And mm -hmm. uh, homosexuals decided they really didn't like that term and fought against it. They were, they were called deviants and because they deviate from a norm. Uh, it has a degree of accuracy to it, but it's, it's a loaded word. So is addict. Well, I agree, and also the word alcoholic is another very loaded word. And in our Absolutely. program, in our program, when we talk to people, we say to them, what do you think is your best choice? Is it your best choice to quit drinking, to reduce your drinking, or to be safer? And you don't have to put any label on yourself to decide, you know, what's going to be your best choice. Well, alcoholism is, a, is an indefinable well, it's not is a badly defined term. It's not defined, uh, and it's again one of those loose terms. My dad might have been an alcoholic, and people the way people uh, use the term because every morning when he get up, he had a shot or two of of, uh, of um, rye whiskey, and then he went to work and he had wine with dinner, and he had wine with supper in the evening. So he might have always had a little buzz, uh, mm. but he was highly functional. He was a very successful businessman. Uh, he was uh, uh, a very ethical man, uh, one of the most ethical, most ethical people I've ever met. And I did see him drunk a few times, but it didn't make him an alcoholic. Yet when I talked about, uh, I remember doing some work on family work uh, in, in one of my classes in university years ago, one of the students said, well, your dad was an alcoholic. Don't you know that? And you're a child of an alcoholic. And I said, that's bullshit. <laughs> Child of an alcoholic? That's another label. Like codependency, another one of those off terms. But um, uh, they're, they're simplistic. They're simplistic ways of dealing. I don't, I don't know if you've ever read a book called Drugs, Set, and Setting by... Yes. Uh, well, that's, that's a remarkable book. Uh, it's a book that everyone who is involved in the field of working with people who use drugs should become familiar with. And it was, as you, you know, and maybe some of your listeners don't know, however, it was written uh, by a physician who uh, saw all of these people coming back from the Vietnam War who had been using uh, uh, opiates to get through the battles and came back and weren't addicts. They used a hell of a lot of opiates, but they weren't addicts. They, didn't, they stopped using when the circumstances changed. So he looked at what is it. What are the, the, the areas you need to look at when you're looking at whether someone is going to become uh, dependent on drugs? It was the drug itself, the person, and the environment uh, in simplistic terms. Drug set and setting. And uh, a lot of contemporary work in harm reduction psychotherapy is based on, on Zinberg's work. Uh, a lot of the work that uh, Adam, uh, Andrew Tatarski does in New York and Pat Denning and her group out on the West Coast is really uh, dependent uh, uh, on, on Zinberg's work, and they acknowledge that. Zinberg was amazing. Um, and the whole, you know, and it should be applied to, 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 well, 
we need to look at harm reduction in alcohol. You're right. Uh, alcohol and cocaine and heroin and amphetamines and dozens of other things are drugs. Are there? And, and there are similarities. They, if singling out alcohol is different because it's legal, isn't fair. It isn't fair to the person who uses alcohol or suffers from alcohol abuse. The same sort of things they apply. And the whole moderation management movement, if it would only catch on, but um, 12 steps have a hold on, on, on addiction treatment. I noticed recently that um, we're going to be producing in Canada Intervention, the TV show. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I looked at uh, their website for the Canadian show, and every single place that they're, uh, they're mentioning in their programs is a 12-step place. Uh, the places are in Canada and in the United States. There are also places that are very costly. So uh, it's it's doing two things. It's promoting 12-step, but it's also promoting help for middle-class people rather than people who are, are rather than for everyone. It's uh, uh, alcohol or drug dependency isn't. Uh, it's very is very democratic. It can uh, it can hit anyone. But treatment is for those who can afford it. It's not fair. It's not right. And treatment is, is always, always at least what is, what is promoted and sanctioned. And I think intervention is a dangerous program uh, for this reason. It's only 12-step. That's it. Well, 12-step was never meant to be a program. It was meant to be self-help. Mm -hmm. another, another travesty. Yeah, I've never been a fan of that uh, television show. So, we've got a couple minutes left. What uh, is on the future for harm reduction in Canada? The struggle to um, get a place on the, at the table is the big, big thing. Um, we have to really keep moving forward the agenda that harm reduction is not a controversial approach. That, that the abstinence-based approach is the controversial approach. So we have to push the agenda for, uh, for getting harm reduction entrenched in policy and in practice. And we, the other thing we have to do is work very hard at changing the laws, both nationally and internationally. This is an international struggle. I mean, the UN has a, a, a hold on, on, and through the, through and through the UN, the United States, and a few other countries have a hold on maintaining prohibition. Uh, it's, uh, they make too much money from it, I'm afraid. And uh, uh, it's, it's, that hold has to be breaking because, broken because it's not working. It's causing death, disease, family breakdown, uh, international problems. Prohibition has to stop. It has never, ever, ever worked. So that's the battle. Prohibition is the battle and, and ensuring a legitimate place for harm reduction at the table, while at the same time seeing that harm reduction be, doesn't become undermined by becoming uh, professionalized uh, or institutionalized. Uh, that's a very important thing uh, to, to look at uh, because like social work, it could become irrelevant. And I think that on a social worker, or I have degrees in social work. Um, my profession has somewhat it has become irrelevant as it's lost its radical, cutting edge, outside the box approach to things. Harm reduction still has that, and it's got to need to maintain that to be relevant and to be timely. Boy, I okay. think a lifetime of work to be done. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there is. Well, thank you very much for being our guest tonight, Walter. And I'm going to close the show now. Next week, our guests are going to be Sam Semberis, who is uh, with the Housing First program. It's a harm reduction housing program. And our other guest will be Helga Matsko, who is a Gestalt therapist in New York, in uh, Rhode Island, who has a program that she calls Beyond Recovery and talks about, you know, what to do after you get sober. And thank you, everyone 
for joining us on the show tonight, and good night. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.